Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Well, amen. Thank you, Matthew. All right, so those who are going to Little Worship can be dismissed at this time. And if you're uh, staying here with us, I invite you to open your um, Bibles to Ruth uh, or your bulletins uh, to Ruth. You see uh, chapter 1, we're beginning a new sermon series uh, through the book of Ruth this morning. And, and typically when we begin new sermon series, I like to take kind of like the bulk, well, a, a, a large portion of the first uh, sermon in kind of like an introductory factor and kind of introduce the book to you. But today, um, I, th- I think I'm just going to let Ruth speak for itself. Uh, though I will say this, um, so the book of Ruth isn't about Ruth necessarily, about how awesome of a woman she is and how all our women need to be uh, like Ruth. Uh, no, the book of Ruth is about God. It's about God seeking and saving the lost. Uh, and so there's a lot that we can learn from this because we too um, need saving. Um, so with that, let's, let's dive in. Ruth, we're just going to read the whole first chapter, get just a, a big bird's eye view of what's going on. Uh, This is God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elamelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and, when she le- and, and she was left with her two sons. Well, these two sons took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. Uh, they lived there about ten years, but Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, then... She rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. My daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons like today. Would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you 
or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is God's word. Um, Let's pray. Lord, as we return to this ancient text, um, a a text that took place thousands of years ago, was even recorded and put into your word some 3,000 years ago. Um, Lord, it's been commentated on and preached on and thought through and studied so much. But Lord, this morning we ask that you would come and speak to us through it. Oh Lord, we need you. Um, We ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, uh, for they are many. Um, Lord, may your word come through strong. And we ask this in Christ. Amen. So there are a lot of things going on in this chapter, um, but there's also one really large reality that is also true of our lives, and it's this. Saints and sinners and the providence of God. Saints and sinners and the providence of God. Let's talk about that. First, saints and sinners. You know, Ruth opens with a key detail that unlocks the the rest of this book. It's verse one. They say, in the days when the judges ruled, um, in other words, this happened during the time of the book of Judges in in the Bible. Um, and, And that detail is so important because if, you know, as we read through Judges, we see that this was one of the lowest points in Israel's history. One scholar said, Judges is a record of division, cruelty, apostasy, civil war, and national disgrace. And throughout Judges, there's this tagline that keeps appearing, and you've read it, you've seen it. It's, and in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Which means... It's kind of like, the, you know, how it is in America. Um, people thought it was up to them. Like, hey, the Calvary wasn't coming. There is no king to step in and to save you. If you're going to be saved, you've got to save yourself. If you're going to rise up, then you and your family, like, you're going to have to do it. And so this kind of explains the context of why Elimelech would make the decision to leave the land of promise. Like, I mean, to leave the land of blessing in, in Canaan, and, and to, to move to Moab, which is the, a pagan nation, the land of their enemies. Um, so, like, who on earth would do that? Uh, of course, the travesty of the judge's error, era is that all the time during this, the period of the judges, God was their king. 
But, but they rejected that, that notion. They, they didn't want this heavenly king. They, they wanted an earthly king because everybody else had an earthly king. They wanted an earthly king. And so this is a period where Ruth takes place um, marked by unbelief and doubt and really just wavering faith. And, and in the first few verses, we, we kind of see this list of characters. It's uh, Elimelech and his wife Naomi. And they have two sons, Malon and Chilion, and then they move to Moab. And in Moab, the sons get married to two Moabite women, Orpah and, and Ruth. So we've got this cast of, of six characters. But before we can even get to know them, I mean, they're killed all faster than like the cast of some cheap soap opera, right? I mean, they just are just whacked, just like that. And by verse 5, all the men are dead. And, and, and we're just left with women, uh, mainly other than, of course, Boaz, left with women for the rest of the book, uh, Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. And, and we hear that today. And, and, and we think, well, that sounds rough to lose your loved ones. But we have to know that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this right here is the epitome of suffering. Because not only had you know, they lost their, their loved ones, but they had nothing. Because they're, like, think about it, there was no Social Security death benefit uh, there was no life insurance policy to cash in. There was no 401k, no, no, there was no Bitcoin. There, there was no, no federal assistance whatsoever. And so in that culture, the wives, as you see, you know, it's interesting, we teach our boys to kind of go out into the world, like go out and conquer and get married. And, but we kind of, we keep our, our daughters kind of, you know, the, the, the husband is, is kind of the person taking care of their daughter until they get married, Right. Well, it, it was the flip side of that in the, in the ancient culture. Um, the women, they were the ones that went out. Like the wives would go live with their husband's families, and, and all the men would stay home. And so it was, just, it was a different uh, culture, and so no men meant no money. Uh, so, I mean, not only are you suffering because, well, your husband is dead, your sons are dead, but, but you're suffering because you got no money, uh, no support. So Paul Miller uh, said a, a leading management consultant firm that kind of goes around and gives leadership, you know, seminars for businesses and things. They, they used to pose this hypothetical situation to American men. And, and I want y'all to think about this as, as I ask. So they would say, pretend that your mother and your wife and your daughter are all in a sinking boat. And, and you only have time to rescue one of them. Who, who would you rescue? Uh, your mom, your wife, or uh, your daughter? Well, 60% of American men said that they would rescue their daughter, 60%. Uh, 40% said they would rescue their wife, but no one said they would rescue their mom. <laughs> they just leave poor mama adrift. <laughs> just fend for yourself, mama. Um, okay, but, but then the consultant firm then posed the exact same question to a group of Saudi men, Saudi Arabian men, and every single one of them said that they would rescue their mother. And why, you ask? Well, because in the Near East, like still to this day, mothers have no identity, like zero identity outside of the home. And so by verse 5, these women are in the midst of suffering that we can't fathom. And, and then, you know, until fairly recently, this is kind of how this story has been broken down. Um, Naomi is bad <laughs> and Ruth is good, right? And, and so it's don't be a Naomi. Like, don't be a grumbling, bitter mother-in-law, always complaining about stuff. Mother-in-laws, don't be Naomi. 
be a Ruth. You know, Naomi is the sinner and and Ruth is the saint. But, and, and even until recently, I mean, like trained theologians have just skewered Naomi. Uh, actually, I was reading this week, uh, one said that in, this, in commenting about Naomi wanting to send her daughter-in-laws back to their homes and not, not to go with them and her to Bethlehem, uh, this commentator wrote, I get the impression that Naomi didn't want to take Orpah and Ruth to Bethlehem because they were, they were living proof that she and her husband had permitted their two sons to marry these you know, two ladies outside of the covenant. In other words, he says, Naomi was trying to cover up her disobedience. If she returned to Bethlehem alone, no one would know that she or her family had broken the law of Moses. And then he said, oh man, had Naomi been walking with the Lord, she would have won Orpah to the faith as well and brought two trophies of grace back to Bethlehem instead of just just one. And then he said, Naomi was imprisoned by selfishness and bitter against God. And there may be some truth to that. But but there's another huge problem because a careful reading of Ruth and and really a careful reading of the Bible says something different. It it tells us what all true, what all mature Christians know to be true. And that is that the life of faith doesn't always fall into neat categories, does it? Um, As Richard Pratt told my class in seminary that the life of faith has fuzzy edges on it. Or Martin Luther put it this way. He said, on this earth as Christians, we are those who are at the same time sinner and saint. And, um, and, and real quick, I, I may mention this a little bit during communion, but that doesn't mean that um, you have dual identity. Like, like our primary identity, if we've been saved, then our identity is washed in Jesus' blood. You are in Christ And yet what we're saying is in reality of in this life through sanctification, you know, we're not perfect. Uh, We we, we still have sin that we're trying to kill. And and so um, Brian Habig, a pastor in South Carolina, mentioned uh, something that he heard Nancy Guthrie say uh, that changed his perspective on this whole topic. And I I hope it will us as well. And by the way, if you don't know who who Nancy Guthrie is, um, ask some of our ladies who went to the Gospel Coalition Conference a few years ago and ran into her in a restaurant. Uh, just ask them that story. <laughs> um, but, but Nancy is a prolific author, uh, teacher. She's a, uh, now a podcaster and a, a member of the PCA. But Nancy and her husband also lost two children early in their marriage. Uh, Nancy is a Christian woman who knows, like, knows the pain of loss. Uh, she is well acquainted with grief, and, and so she speaks on the topic often. And she was being asked about Job. And you remember Job was this wealthy, successful man who basically by the end of chapter one had lost almost everything that he had. And at the end of chapter one, in grief, Job still said, well, the Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And and, and we say, well, what a man of faith. Like, I want to be like that. But then in the next chapter, Job's wife says something else, doesn't she? She, she said, she, talking to Job, like, Job, why are you sitting over here still worshiping God? Curse God and die. And in that moment, it's like, if we're reading that, we're like, how could Job ever marry somebody like that? Job to be such a faithful person to marry a woman like that? I mean, she doesn't even seem like she, she's a believer. How could a believer say, curse God and die? And so the consensus is, is always been like, okay, Job's good and his wife not so good, right? But Nancy said, I don't see it that way. 
She said, I take her comment to be the crazy things that people say when they're grieving. The crazy things people say when they're in pain. And Habig said hearing that was the first time he saw Job's wife as a real person. Like not just this like cartoon version of you know, good, bad, um, but a real person. Because when we are devastated, we can say crazy things. And so Job's wife might have been someone very close to God whose life had just been torn apart and, and we're, we're hearing her broken heart. And, and here's the point of, of this. For centuries, Naomi has been just dismissed as this self-absorbed malcontent. Um, but, but here, just recently, uh, she is starting to be seen as the female version of Job. And one scholar said the extent of their losses, uh, the wrestling with God, the bitter laments, I mean, they, they mirror each other, and yet historically we have wept with Job and criticized Naomi. Now is the time we weep with Naomi too. And so instead of trying to be like Ruth, and we're going to talk about Ruth during this series, but we also need to see ourselves in Naomi. Because just like Naomi, many of us are a bundle of paradoxes. Like Paul, we often find ourselves, we, we, do, uh, we do not do the good we want, but the evil we do not want to do is what we keep on doing. And so we too need the gospel in the pain. And so with all that said, notice the saint and, uh, or the sinner slash saintness of Naomi. Because she really is all over the place. Um, in, in, you know, verse 8, Naomi, she, like, she blesses her daughters-in-law. Uh, she said, may Yahweh deal kindly to you. And, and that word she uses for kind is, is kind of a special word in Hebrew. It's the word hesed, uh, which describes the love that God has towards his people. And, and this is this special word that combines love with loyalty, with sacrifice, and just ties it all together. And so this is the, uh, that steadfast, one-way, stubborn love that will not let you go. Um, type of love. It, it's a love that dies to self, that sacrifices so that others can flourish. And in other words, it's Jesus' love for you on the cross. And, and if, if you have experienced that as a believer, then as a believer, that is also the type of love that we give to other brothers and sisters in Christ, that we engage the world with in this, this way. And, and, and so... Um, Oh, how countercultural. And, and this is why like, you know, the world doesn't understand the church and why we do some of the things that we do because they don't understand hesed, this concept of like it's possible to love somebody in a way by like you not getting what you want. Like it's possible for you to die to self and love someone else, and, which is good. Like that's a possibility, but that's a, a thing that our world does not understand. And so it's oh, how countercultural, um, which you know, we live in a world uh, that says how dare you ask someone to do a certain thing for you? Uh, we live in a world in which love is a feeling that's all about being happy, and if you aren't happy, then you get out. But that's not hesed love. That's just like selfishness, right? And so the council culture is out for blood. And we see this even recently in, the, in not our church, but just the church at large, with people saying, how dare you ask someone to dress a certain way? How dare you ask someone to act a certain way? That's so oppressive. And if the world was all about you, it, it would, I guess, suppose it would be oppressive. 
But, but God has called us to a Hesed love, a, a love that lays down our rights for the good of others. And it's okay because he loves you with that Hesed love too, so it gives you the ability to lay down your rights. And so there has been a lot of talk recently, just a side talk, of just especially in just church world recently of uh, you know modesty culture and different things that we ask Christians to do. And, and please know that like none of that is about oppressing or hypersexualizing or like, no, no, like the reason we do that um, is because we are laying down some of our rights for the good of our brothers and sisters because we love them uh, in a hesed way. So it's not about being oppressed, it's about serving brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see this a lot with Naomi and Ruth. There's this hesed love, this constant giving towards each other. And so far from being selfish, uh, Naomi is trying to send these, her two daughter-in-laws away because she loves them. And, and I mean, like, she can't be as bad as we think because th the fact that Ruth and Orpah both want to stay with, with Naomi other than going back to their own homes shows us that there has to be a wonderful side to Naomi, right? Well, that's, that's the first thing, the hesed love that she shows. Uh, second thing she shows as far as being kind of, quote, saint, or she's a believer, is she shows tremendous faith because back then, every little nation had their own little local God. You know, kind of like we got our, like, Mississippi State and Ole Miss and Auburn, Alabama. Like, so um, they had their local little person, God, that they worshiped. And, and so when you were in the land of Moab, then they thought that their God was strong. But if you went somewhere else out of Moab, then they didn't think their God was so strong anymore. But Naomi here rightfully says the same thing that Jonah said to the sailors. Naomi says that Yahweh is God of the whole earth. Like he don't need to be just in Canaan. He doesn't need to be, he can be anywhere. That God, the whole earth is his. That Yahweh can even bless them in Moab. And, and then there's Naomi's uh, lament. You know, we've, we've lost the practice of lamenting in, in America. And because we hear, at least, you know, sometimes I hear Naomi's lament and I think, man, she's disrespecting God. And as a Presbyterian, like, I want to come and throw theology at her and tell her why, why her theology is all wrong. But, but ironically, with lament, it's actually good theology that drives our frustration. It's, it's good theology that drives our brokenness. And so Paul Miller says, lament grieves that the world is unbalanced. It, it grieves that gap between you know, your reality and, and the promises of God. And when those things don't match up, it grieves that gap. And we cry out to God in pain because we know that God is there. Because we know that he is providentially in control. And, and so there, there's a difference between saying, why? Why, God? And then saying, how dare you? How dare you, God? There's a difference. And so to lament is to, by faith, cry out, why? And so the ancient Hebrews were constantly lamenting. Actually, if you look through, through Psalms, like one-third of the Psalms were cries of lament. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe our lack of lament today actually reveals a lack of faith. Instead of being someone, oh, I don't know if they believe, crying out to God like that. No, maybe, maybe you don't believe. Maybe it reveals a lack of faith that you have or maybe a love of the world that you may have. Just the inability to mourn sin. 
So what does the Bible tell us to do you know, with people crying to God and lament? It's not throw theology at them or throw some platitude at them. No, like Ruth, we simply weep with them. We're called to weep with those who, who weep. And so far from only being a bitter woman, Naomi is a woman who knows the Hesed love of God, and yet she has been broken by pain, and she's crying out. But, flip side of that, she's also not perfect, right? I mean, we're not trying to say that she's this super awesome, great person. Um, you know, her husband was disobedient. I mean, they, they were in sin. They had no business going to Moab to begin with. Um, Bethlehem literally the, the name Bethlehem literally means house of bread I mean it is literally Israel's bread basket is where they left and, and so uh, the, the reason they were in famine to begin with was because God was drawing them to repentance God was drawing them to himself and said and yet of, of repenting and going to God they said you know what we're going to do things on our own we're going to do it our way and so in, instead of crying out to God they just moved to a pagan nation <laughs> And we, we do this a lot, don't we? Even in churches, it's tempting not to do the hard work of reconciliation because even in churches, you know, we can kind of cross swords with other believers here and we can kind of have a hard time. And instead of doing the hard work of reconciling that relationship, we just be like, I'm just going to go to another church now. And so they justified it to themselves. They said, well, look, we're not, we're not going to like live in Moab. Uh, we're just going to go, we're just going to sojourn there. We're just going to camp out just a little bit. But as you read, you know, they started sojourning, but then they stayed there. And then their, their sons married into the culture. All of a sudden, that's their home. And that little decision changed the course of their lives. And so in the pain of famine, they got pragmatic. Um, but let's be very, very honest, can we? Like, like just like erase the mask of like, hey, we're good Christian people. Um, and let's be honest. Because we can sit through decades of, of, of learning and believing that God uses suffering and that God uses pain for his glory and, and for our good. We can sit through decades of that. But then the pain crashes into us out of nowhere. And the lights go out. And it can be a different story. We can get pragmatic pretty quick. It's like, you know, something happens and like all that theology just kind of goes out the window. The, the hard comes and all we want to do is make it stop as quick as possible. And we're looking for exits, even if that means disobeying God to get it. And look, this plays out in a million different ways in all of our lives. You know, be it, be it divorce, be it abortion, be it whatever. You know, we all have these stances which we say, this is, this is God's way, this is God's will, this is what we're going to do, but then the pain comes and we can get pragmatic pretty quick and in response to pain, Christians have found themselves doing things they never imagined they'd do. But we need to know that even there, like even in the pragmatic response to the pain, God's hesed love still pursues and that's why we can get out of bed in the morning. Sometimes that's the only reason we can get out of bed. Which brings us to our second point, God's providence. Though Naomi's feelings, oh, they're, they're all over the place. And she's wrestling with bitterness and, and anger. 
the chapter ends with her putting one foot in front of the other and walking back to Bethlehem. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if you caught that in verse 21. Remember, they said that they left because of a famine. There's no food. And, and they left, and yet Naomi said, I went away full, and I've come back empty. And she's saying there's a, a, a feeling that you can't get from food or you can't get from stuff. There is a feeling that only comes from God, and, and being near to God is the only way to get that. And so the continued use of the word return, 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 suggests repentance. That, that Naomi doesn't merely just feel bad and just continue in Moab, but she like feels th- that. But then she returns. She actually, that repentance draws her back to God. It, it draws her back in. And so uh, Paul Miller said, bitterness openly expressed to God plus obedience is a raw, pure form of faith. It's just doing the next thing by faith. And that's what we see when Naomi walks into Bethlehem. You know, the women ask her, what, is, is this Naomi? And Naomi, Naomi said, don't, don't call me that. You know, Naomi means pleasant. Uh, she said, there's nothing pleasant about me. Call me Mara, which means bitter. I, I'm hurting. But then she said something interesting. She said, for the Almighty... The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. And that, that word Almighty is the word y'all know, Shaddai. Uh, and you know, when Hebrews wanted to talk about the covenantal love of God, they used Yahweh. But when they were trying to highlight, highlight the fact that God, he, he's just, he rules over all things. His almighty rule, his providence over all that happens in life, they used Shaddai, the God Almighty. In other words, Naomi is walking into town, and yes, she's a wreck, but she's walking in and she's saying that God in his good providence had done this. Now, Naomi couldn't possibly understand in this moment when she's walking into Bethlehem how God could make good of this mess, her pain. It would be a while before she would, she would learn any, even some of that. But we know something that Naomi didn't know in the end of chapter 1. We know that at the end of Ruth, Ruth ends with a genealogy, right? To let us know hey, what God was doing during this whole Moab, during this whole thing. Because Ruth would have a son. And it's interesting that if you know this when we get there, that it doesn't say that a son was born to Ruth. It says, no, no, a son was born to Naomi <laughs> to show just how, how God is redeeming Naomi during this whole process. Uh, she was such a part of the family. And so the son name was, was Obed, and Obed had a son named Jesse. And Jesse would go on to have many sons, most notably David, who would be king. And, and, then, and then, spoiler, uh, if you keep tracing that line down, the family tree, eventually you'll get to Mary and Joseph and another baby boy, born where? In Bethlehem. And so we're seeing this, that God, too, in his providence would lose a son to bring his people back so that we we could know his hesed love. So as we close, um, let's borrow a a story from Brian Habig. Uh, Brian tells a story about Dorothy Sayers and Dorothy uh, if, you, if you don't know who she was, uh, Dorothy Sayers was the first woman to graduate from Oxford University. Big deal. First woman graduate. 
uh, and she was a writer. She wrote a lot of things uh, amongst uh, the things that she wrote. She wrote uh, detective fiction, detective novels. And um, in her stories, the detective's name was Lord Peter Whimsey. And, and, and halfway through the series, uh, Dorothy Sayers has Lord Peter Whimsey. You know, he's solving crimes, almost like Sherlock Holmes. He's, he's solving the crimes. He's doing the things. But, but he's, he's hurting. He's not whole. He's not in a good place. And, and out of nowhere, like in the middle of this, this novel series, um, this character shows up into the story named Harriet Vane. And, and in the stories, Harriet is one of the first female graduates of Oxford. And she also writes detective fiction. <laughs> and, and, and the two of them meet in their stories and, and they work on some cases together and they, they fall in love and they get married and like, it changed the detective's life. It changed his whole trajectory. And, and more than a few literary critics have said, Dorothy Sayers wrote herself into the story. <laughs> um, I mean, she created the literary world, she created the characters, and then her heart so went out to the characters that she wrote herself into the story to redeem them, to save them. Well, I hope you know that that is the gospel. And that's why we can get up in the morning. That's what God did. That God took this world that he created and he didn't just look at it with all the pain and all the suffering and all the heartbreak and say, wow, what a drama, I can't wait till the next season. No, his heart so went out to his creation and to the people that he created that he wrote himself into the pain. Actually, he took the pain on himself so that we could be made whole. And now, look, that doesn't explain all of our pain. When the pain hits you, that, that doesn't explain. We, we, we may not understand why. Why, why is all this happening? But it, it does reinterpret our pain, doesn't it? So this morning, really, the, the big picture of Ruth chapter 1 is a call, like to stop playing the Christian and be real, please. As saints and sinners, like come to Jesus in your mess, in your pain, and find what Naomi eventually found, that you really, really can trust him. You can trust Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Again, uh, it, it hits us right where we are. And so, Lord, I, I know there are many here, some here who are really suffering. And, and me too, Lord. Pain, pain has hit me. And I'm like, I find myself just dazed, like I've been punched in the face. Lord, in those moments where we're so, we're so tempted just to get pragmatic and to get relief and let's just figure this out on our own, Lord, help us to trust your providence um, that we don't always understand, but we can trust you. So, Lord, may we do so uh, in Christ. And Father, now as we come to your table, uh, we ask that you would take these uh, everyday elements, um, this juice and, and cracker, and that you would set it apart to be a means of grace to your people to remind us uh, just yet again of who you call us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. 
I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.